Here is what Donald Trump said. Judge for your, I'm not saying whether or not it's good. We had an equal amount of emails. So people say, thank you so much for showing how brilliant Donald Trump is. He's a great American. Two people say, thank you so much. He's showing what an ass clown he is. And it would be the same thing they would be emailing about. And we stayed assiduously and still do neutral, which is here is what he said. We'll tell you what the data says about him. Hello. This is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Bill Frischling, is an entrepreneur, a former journalist, and a technologist. I asked him to be a guest on the show because of a tool that he built called FactBase, which collected everything that Trump ever said, transcribed, and made it searchable. Bill broadened the mission, including other politicians and earnings calls from companies, and built a business, which he called Fact Squared, around that generalized product. He recently sold Fact Squared to the DC-based publishing business Fiscal Note, which is now in the process of going public. Bill has a very interesting career with a lot of lessons learned, and he is a talker as well. So this was a very fun interview. You should listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Bill Frischling of FactBase. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I am a lapsed reporter. Um, I am a technologist by accident. Uh, I was at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was part of the team that put the Washington Post on the internet um, six weeks after Netscape baited, if we want to go back that far. And I kind of fell into product and taught myself technologies as I was going along. But um, I've been, was at AOL. Um, my wife did an e-commerce startup that was sold in 2009. And she sanely decided to take it easy. I insanely said, I want to go back to media. So I went to Gannett, US News and World Report, and then um, founded FactBase about uh, six weeks after the 2016 election, when, like a lot of people, I said, I have no idea what I should do, but I feel like I need to do something. That led to um, some very interesting AI technology that we call Margaret. Um, we in clients, as well as doing our core mission, which was transparency in the White House. And we were acquired um, three weeks before inauguration 2021 by a company called Fiscal Note. Been there ever since, and they let me keep playing with cool technology. Honestly, the reason that I thought you made sense for this podcast was because of FactBase. FactBase got into this world of politics and tech, which I cover. And also, you were recommended to me by uh, Max Cayman Cross who I interviewed recently under circumstances that became quite different afterwards, as people know. I think you have a tremendously interesting career that you just glossed over pretty quickly. I want to uh, explore that a little bit. 
Where'd you grow up? Oh, so I uh, grew up on Long Island on the South Shore, Nassau County, about uh, three miles from JFK. So born, raised in like most fourth generation uh, Americans and very quickly escaped because it was Long Island. Right. Uh, went off to Michigan State and that's where you you got into journalism. Why? Right. So I I loved writing and I loved both the writing and the reporting aspect of it. And um, realized in college I was a much better reporter, so to speak, than I was a writer. Loved the schmoozing, loved the gathering the information. My writing was okay. If I'm putting myself on the couch, it's something different every single day. You wake up in the morning, hey, there was an art theft. Go cover who stole the Picassos from a safe. And the next day it's like, hey, the president's coming to town. Um, go meet with the chefs who are preparing dinner for them in Philadelphia. If you're an ADHD kind of person, it's a wonderful career. There's always something new to do. Um, but that was the original reason why I went into it. I just love the adrenaline, the change, and you're always learning something. Did you Were you in like college paper and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. I was uh, the state news at the time I was there. It was a 37,000 circulation daily, five days a week, and a staff of 200. Slightly different world pre-internet. I basically spent 80 hours a week working at the school paper for four years for um, $1.55 a week. And I squeezed in classes on the side. But in journalism, it's all about the clips and the experience. So you were the editor. I was, yep. I was the editor in chief my senior year and started as an intern, like a freshman, like everybody else. And on the bright side, got a lot of, at least on management end, um, got a lot of that out of my system and um, had an early experience in understanding what I knew and what I didn't know, which is much better to get out of your system in college. After college, where'd you go? So I uh, went to the Philadelphia Inquirer. They uh, had a program for a while called Neighbors, where they would bring in essentially non-union underpaid people for $19,000 a year who lined up around the block to cover the burbs for the Philly Inquirer, the, you know, right after the Bill Maramau years. And great training ground. You had editors, you know, Pulitzer winning editors. Uh, I worked for a guy, Dick Cooper, who um, was the one that broke the Attica story. Uh, one is Pulitzer for that. Phenomenal guy to learn from. And they basically work you for two years and then help you get a job afterwards. So it was a great boot camp, covered Lower Marion. So right when Kobe Bryant was there, which was, of course, I didn't realize it was Kobe Bryant at the time. Well, you know what I mean. And just, I mean, everything from cop shop to municipal, you know, municipal board meetings, everything in the middle. It's a great way to just get your hands, you know, dirty, just digging into a little bit of everything. So I was there for about uh, just shy of two years, and I was freelancing at the time for Craig Stoltz at the Post on, on a magazine that was called Fast Forward, writing video game reviews, which I thought was the greatest thing in the world. I got free video games and got paid 25 bucks to play them. Um, and he pinged me and said, there's this, uh, yeah, we're starting this internet thing. This is 1994, and you might want to talk to so-and-so. I was apprehensive because I'm like, I didn't want to leave reporting, and God bless, and I wish I remember her name. I sat down with an editor and it was the only time I met her and said, I got this. And she's like, you have a chance to go work at the Post doing something on the internet. Don't even stop and think, go do it. And I was qualified because I was 22 and a reporter and knew how to turn on a computer. Made me as qualified as anybody at the time. Um, and I was employee number six at Post.com, along with Jim Brady, Chris Johnson, Jason Sykin. Uh, a lot of folks have been around the block. Sounds like a, actually a great break in your life, right? Oh, yeah. It was, it was, I, look, you're young, you're making no money. And at the time at the post, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say the spec of HTML 1.0 was, which is, you know, the marketplace was still months out from actually being finalized. I mean, nothing had been invented. 
And because nothing had been invented, you were just making things up, whatever you needed to do. And it was, I mean, you know, are we legally allowed to run ads? Are we allowed to scoop the newspaper? Um, which, by the way, spoiler alert at the time, we weren't. Heaven's Gate. That's a much longer story. We had Heaven's Gate eight hours before CNN, and we weren't allowed to scoop the paper because they were the paper. I had to wait for the print edition to come out. We had to wait for the print edition. We had it at two o'clock in the afternoon. CNN, if I remember correctly, was like nine o'clock at night. They had who it was. We had figured it out by literally pulling AOL caches of his web page, which at the time didn't purge. You list your title on LinkedIn at, for that time as mad scientist. Still have Why? the business card. Yeah. Because I was 23, I was doing basically how do we apply technology to journalism? And they said, just tell me what your title is. And as I said on the thing, and it's true, I learned I, greatest title I ever had, and I'll never let a 23-year-old pick their own job title. But I still have a card that says Washington Post and Mad Scientist on it. That is a, a great keepsake. You got to blow that up and put that on a frame on the wall. <laughs> oh, I've got that's it. That's in Evernote and scanned in high resolution. Uh, that's keeper forever. <laughs> you were there for a while. What what were you learning? What was happening? Everything. I mean, it's I sometimes describe it to the newer generation as like when you say there wasn't there yet. We launched, and then at one point somebody said, "That's interesting. Can we actually see how many people are looking at these articles?" And the engineer said. That's interesting. Yeah, we've got this thing called weblogs. And they're like, yeah, we could probably clean. I mean, there was nothing. So the none of the tools, none of the tools that by which you publish online now, huge systems yet to be invented. Nothing. We, we had a tool called, I think it was Navapress, which was notorious that if you save too many times, it would insert tens of thousands of hard returns. And remember, this is a dial up time of 28.8. Suddenly your 500 word article is 300k and take three minutes to download because Navapress would put in 30,000 hard returns if you saved it too many. That was literally the only tool we had. Everything else, it wasn't even that the tools weren't there. The concept of what tools we needed didn't exist. We were still figuring it out at the time. It was great. One of the things you worked on was election coverage, wasn't it? Yep. There was, um, we'd started something in partnership with, um, oh God, why am I suddenly blanking? Politics line. I think it was a national journal. Yeah. National election line, election line. And then it became and then there was politics now and they merged um, and they merged together. And that was how do we cover the 96 election? So I um, got to cover Buchanan. We got to build the website. And I mean, no exaggeration. It was okay. great. We have this website. What do we do? And the answer was good question. What can we show? What are the strengths? We played with databases, searches, interactive polls, doing live chats people say, oh, we're making it up as we go along. I mean, this is making it up when you didn't even have a frame of reference of what to make up. We were hiring people who made CD-ROMs because they were the only ones with any technical experience in doing media and a computer. Were you at the main Washington Post building where all the reporters were? Were you somewhere else? No, we were in, well, we started in the main building in the annex at 15th and F. Um, We interacted with the reporters, which with varying degrees of success, most of whom usually blew us off. Um, only because it was like, what do you mean? You want me to do something extra? I've got a deadline at six o'clock. The concept of rolling deadlines didn't exist, uh, even close to existing. And then I think we were finally exiled to Arlington. So we had moved over to a building in Roslyn that later then moved to Courthouse. Um, My favorite time of being down there was when we were first doing beta testing with probably 20 people looking. I was on the 6 a.m. shift with a woman named Mary Lou Fulton. We were both Prince fans. 
And so we would crank prints to the point that you couldn't even hear yourself think while we were doing because it's 6 a.m. And I remember one time we were doing that and suddenly I felt a tap on the shoulder, turned around, and it was Len Downey who's like, would you guys mind lowering it? We could hear it in the other building. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and that was – I'm like, oh, so, I mean, he was cool about it. Don't get me wrong. But it was like, oh, sorry, you could hear us. Like, I think they could hear you, you know, in Maryland. It's like, okay, we'll lower it. Such an interesting job and time. Why did you leave and what for? So at the time, there was a transition where the Post decided it should start being a business. Now, let's be clear. I'm saying that like that's a bad thing. It's kind of blindingly obvious. But at the time, I mean, this was when media companies had money. They were profitable. They were the early adopters in tech. There was a change in management. And the two founding editors, Jason Sykin and Mary Lou Fulton, went over to AOL. And the new publisher came in who, in retrospect, I mean, he was doing what he was supposed to do. And he started talking about going in the car and synergies and going in the same direction. And after the first meeting, I think half the editorial staff said, time to freshen my resume. And so of the original founding staff of 20, 18 of us were over at AOL inside of a year, which was as silly as it sounds again at the time. We were like, but they're not really a pure editorial operation. Is this because it's still the you leave journalism, you can't go back. And we were at least still had one foot in. And it was a big decision for a lot of folks and went over there and never turned back. What was AOL like? Another company that is legendary in its time and and uh, maybe a little less so now. AOL was a lot of fun. I ran a lot of projects that, in hindsight, I was way underqualified to do, but did fine. I wasn't focused on the business, so we would build projects like, um, hey, we're launching a new search. And then in a meeting, it's like, you know, you should sync up with BD. And BD's like, we sold X, Y, and Z. And I come back and say, yeah, we made $60 million already booked for this year. And I'd be like, wow, I did a great job. I mean, literally, we'd have one half-hour meeting and money would fall from the sky. So I didn't see any of it. So that was fine with me. And I was allowed to go off and build stuff. Um, I was there through Time Warner pre and post. And as I like to joke, but it's sort of true, I learned never send a 26 year old vice president into a New York corporate office and expect to have that person walk out alive. Luckily, I wasn't a vice president, but they basically we were Bush League going up against A-list players who were pissed at us and had 26-year-olds telling them that they knew nothing. And they basically leaned back, smiled, and ate us alive and spit us out one by one on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, I was nowhere near senior enough to be at that level, thank God. But at at the time, my wife was starting an e-commerce company. Um, She couldn't pay me. I was the fifth person she hired. And that was a better offer than what I had after three years after the merger. It just got ugly. That seemed like code speak to me, what happened. Can you be more concrete about what that merger did to AOL? There's two schools of thought. Actually, there's probably way more than two. I'm in the camp of this. I think it was the most brilliant move that Steve Case ever could have pulled off and the single stupidest thing in the history of any corporation for Time Warner to have done it. Though, of course, hindsight's 2020. If Steve Case hadn't have done it, we would have probably died and withered on the vine long before everybody else. The fact that we did it actually got us the runway we needed. Is that a reason to blow up a half, you know, at the time, it sounds funny to say at the time, a lot of money, but, you know, a quarter trillion dollars worth of value? Probably not, but it kept the company going. It was brutal. It was just, it was Machiavellian at a level that, I mean, people were going to jail for doing things. I mean, people were ending up on the Wall Street Journal where they're talking about internal meetings. I mean, that is stuff I had not only no perspective on it, thank God, again, not senior enough to be involved in that stuff, but 
I haven't seen anything like it because before then it was all, oh my God, AOL's great, AOL's great, AOL's great. And then like on a dime, of course, it's like, what the hell's going on at AOL? Um, I still have a Putz We Are t-shirt that Kara Swisher talked about in one of her books. I thought they were a myth and I found them in a box a year before I left. Um, there was a, you ever hear that story? No. There was a meeting that she did in one of her books where the 26-year-old in with a bunch of 40-year-olds explaining synergy, win-wins, and how everything's all going to come together and they don't get it and they're old media and we're going to drag them, blah, blah, blah. And at one point, apparently, some VP turned to the kid who was presenting and said, you act like you're taking us over. And the kid said, putz, we are. Ooh. Apparently, again, going to the culture, the business development group found it so hysterical that this kid said this to these VPs that they had T-shirts printed up on the front that says AOL Time Warner on the back. It just says, putz, we are. Now, Kara Swish said the T-shirts rumored and didn't exist. I was literally moving from a building that was called CC4 about a year before I left. And, you know, you always go through what people leave behind. And there was a box of T-shirts and I pulled it out. AOL Time Warner, putz, we are. Still have one of them saved. It actually existed. <laughs> One of the crazy things about capitalism is sometimes a new company run by a very young person can acquire a long time successful company and be the boss of it. You've seen this a couple times, have you not? Uh, at le- let's put it this way <laughs> at least once. I've seen. <laughs> I think more than once. Uh, um, I'm sticking with once officially. <laughs> left because they were not treating you well, right? And you started to work with your wife. Is that? Yeah. yeah. It was less they weren't treating me well than just it's being. This will sound juvenile, but it still holds true today. It wasn't fun anymore. And realistically, one of the things I was starting to figure out is holy cow, I know tech. I'm not bad at it. I know these other things. And that's an eminently employable skills. So I was getting a lot less nervous about what about my next job, so to speak. What had you learned about tech? Were you now a a skillful programmer? Were you a, a cobbler together of, of technologies? A cobbler, a cobbler together. I am, a, to, to use really old parlance, I would argue that I am a moderately okay coder. I am an excellent script kitty, um, but I'm able to take the different pieces and put them together. I usually describe it as I'm really good at, if you just give me a hammer, you could build a whole house with a hammer. It'll have some really rough edges and some ugly cuts, but you whack the board hard enough, it'll break. I am really good at finding the right hammers and hacking something together that does what I need it to do. And it's not disingenuous. I will never claim I'm a brilliant coder. What I will say is I'm really good at looking around and saying, wow, if we take this and put it together and coming up with a Rube Goldberg device that ends up working out pretty well. And as we all know, you could say something's a prototype and prototypes could end up running for five years and doing just fine. Could anyone else maintain it? Well, that's a little bit trickier, but it gets you out the door and gets you moving. Yeah. Uh, Actually, there's a lot of commercial software that is not too far from that. No, exactly. And and like everything else I fully subscribe to, like, you know, you show it to any engineer, you show any code to three engineers and all three of them will tell you why it sucks for three very different reasons. It's just like a barber uh, on a haircut. You mentioned this thing, your wife built and sold. What was that called and how did it do? Complete, complete detour. She had finished up B school and she was looking for something. We just had her first child and was looking for something small. And as she jokes around, she failed miserably at keeping it small. Of all things, just buying and selling on eBay. She was doing some tests. She ran some numbers. And this is going back 2003, 2004, where 
there wasn't necessarily a lot of MBAs going and applying discipline to it. So we found a niche. Well, she really found the niche um, looking at buying up store returns of things like iPods, small electronics. Small was key because it was in our basement for the first year. She moved the first million in revenue, literally with our 18-month-old carrying boxes from our basement to our laundry room to UPS. Started on eBay originally, and we built up, you know, again, with the discipline, like, hey, this store, if you're buying batches from Circuit City, an average of 61.2% of them work. You could do a lot of good business modeling when you know, here's what we can recover. Here's the parts. And it built from there to the point that I think by the time we wrapped, we'd processed a half a million iPods before we got acquired. Because of her background and her experience, we not only got noticed by eBay, but we ended up in an American Express commercial. When eBay got an award from the White House, a presidential medal, I think it was 07, there were three eBay sellers invited with John Donahoe. She was one of the three. John Donahoe still pings her from Nike every now and then to say, you know, like, hey, just read this. Congratulations. I mean, it was phenomenal. So we got the attention. We got the visibility, which was great, which helped the business. And then basically 09 came around and there wasn't Christmas, which was or either 08, which wasn't a lot of fun for e-commerce. And one of our larger partners who was a B2B player realized maybe we should be in the B2C because a third of our customers dried up. And peanut butter, chocolate, they made an offer and um, we decided it was the right time to get out. Was it, was it enough to not worry about money again? No. Uh, I don't know if there's ever enough when you have three kids to send to college if there's not enough. But no, it wasn't. It was good money for what it was, which was fundamentally an e-commerce company with a little bit of technology. If I was doing this again 10 years ago, I'd say we undersold the value of some algorithms we bought, which was basically a price velocity matrix, where we could say, well, if we need to move 200 a day through these channels, we're going to lose 2.3% of the value. Here's what we get in acceleration, and here's how, how much it increases the turn. That tech was really cool, but we viewed that as a tool versus potentially, if this was, again, 10 years later, I would have said that actually was the product we should have been selling. What was next for you? Um, I went to, um, did some consulting for a little bit for a friend, Pitney Bowes, of all places, a friend of mine was there. Um, and then I got in at Gannett doing new projects at Gannett for a few years, which I wanted to head back towards media. So I was looking exclusively there, um, and worked on a project called an e-commerce product called Deal Chicken. And then a new product that was actually called Deal Chicken. Yeah. Um, wasn't too bad. <laughs> And then um, uh, there was a boomer product that they were starting up with a friend of mine. And like everything else, and I'm sure you've run into it, when you start being around 20 years and you're staying in an area, everybody just gets to know everybody at a certain point in an industry. So, you know, people I worked with at AOL were now in strategy roles at Gannett and somebody I worked with at AOL, um, I actually ended up working for, who I then ended up helping get hired at US News when I went, you know, and who's now at fiscal note. Um, it all goes around in a circle. So I was there and then US News um, brought me on to launch a real estate section and be entrepreneur in residence. And I was there for just shy of three years. And I had actually hit on this idea at um, talking with reporters. I hit on fact base over beers with reporters talking about fake news in um, second week of December 2016. What, what was the idea for fact base? We, like like most reporters who don't have a lot of money and who drink more than they should, we were out having beers in Georgetown. And that was the first time I'm going to mess up the date. I wish I could double check. I want to say it was December 9th and I'm either plus or minus a day was the first time Trump tweeted fake news. 
And we had ah, fake news. And, and then it was like, okay, let's pretend fake news is real because we all know there's sometimes random crap that goes on in the media and the level at which it goes on is usually what's debated. What couldn't you call fake news? And what we landed on, I think by the third round was you got to hear it from the horse's mouth. There can't be any edits. And you got to be able to look at it beginning and end. You could jump into it, but whatever. But unless you could see the context, can you trust that you heard it straight from the person? And we said, great, problem solved. Fake news. Doesn't exist anymore. Wonderful. Um, went home, Googled, and realized it didn't exist. What didn't exist? A database of what people actually said. Of what people actually said. And in other words, you could find it if you wanted to go to LexisNexis for three hours and poke around and then go to 47 websites and then good. Da, da, da. But there wasn't like a, show me everything Barack Obama ever said. Didn't exist. You could see his official speeches, but didn't have the 200-odd interviews he did or the random drive-bys. There was no discipline. It was whatever the White House released. Um, so when I say didn't exist, I meant, you know, like if there was no place that a reporter could say, hmm, I wonder if he ever said Mexico would pay for the wall, which fast forward a couple of years, and I knew it was working when without ever pinging us inside of an hour, Reuters, the AP, everyone's like, actually, he said it 205 times since he's been elected, according to FactBase. I'm like... They get it. Who did you track in fact base? Initially, just Donald Trump. And I have to, and I'm saying this somewhat seriously, I have to thank Donald Trump for who he is because the technology wouldn't have been as advanced as it became had we realized six months earlier that Donald Trump was a classic outlier and the data we were getting was accurate. Our assumptions were completely incorrect. What do you mean by that? So things like we would measure voice stress. And is somebody normally when people lie, when their brain gets in front of their mouth, everyone has tells. They'll start talking faster. Some people talk slower. They will have different levels of voice stress. They'll start using different words. It's the age of the second you start thinking about what you said, you've already lost from the point of view of monitoring. And we're like, well, he's busy saying he's the greatest in the world and he's completely relaxed. What's going on? What's going on? And I will quote Dr. Justy Frank, who wrote, you know, um, Bush on the couch, Obama on the couch, and then wrote Trump on the couch, who said, no, he's a psychopath. Psychopaths are perfectly relaxed when they're lying. And it was like one of those things where he said, and, he said, hmm, and I went back at all of the data and all of the assumption. It's like, oh my God, we've been getting accurate data pretty much from the beginning. You were running this through a tool that was like a lie detector tool? So not a lie detector. It detects when somebody's not comfortable what they're saying. And I know that sounds like a subtle difference, but there is a lot of debate around whether or not stress or other things can detect if somebody's lying. And the answer is you can always beat things like that. But what everyone agrees on is you can tell when somebody is not speaking the way they normally speak. Distribution of vocabulary, word choices, adjective usage, rate of speech, the voice stress level. And the key there is the baseline. At that point, we had over 4,000 hours of what Donald Trump had said previously. We had an enormous amount of a baseline. This is all uh, audio. Is it also? Yeah. It's just so only. I'm sorry. So I, I jumped ahead. I yeah. apologize. So so the starting point with fact base was this doesn't exist. Let's build something. And the first step is collect the data. So when we started collecting the data, um, the first thing we realized is crap. A lot of the stuff isn't transcribed. We need to figure out transcription. This is twenty late 2016. Well, transcription kind of sucked then. Okay, well, we need to come up with a way of making it not suck because we can't afford to, at the time, we can't afford to proofread all of the stuff. All right, so now you're working on this. Well, wait a minute. At the time, it doesn't punctuate. It's just a word stream. We need to punctuate. Let me tell you, if you ever want to make the best possible robot in history at punctuation, have it be able to successfully punctuate Donald Trump. 
Right, because his sentences are not sentences. 17% of his sentences begin with the word and. I'm pretty sure that's a grammatical faux pas. That's how he talks. Plus, I think my favorite one, which is when it almost blew up our first pass, was it was, I think, 115 words, four verb tenses, and three subject changes, and it was a single sentence. It was on the aircraft carrier Intrepid, and he was talking to, was it Turnbull at the time? The Australian prime minister. And he's like, and we're winning, and we're winning a lot. I mean, just like all, I mean, the word salad was off the hook. So we needed to transcribe. Well, okay, we needed to transcribe. And the list just kind of went on of the things we needed to add in. But the original intent was to have the analysis along with, and the transcripts in a sense were a side benefit. But in order to get Donald Trump right, we had to so overbuild. We call our sister Margaret after Margaret Hooper from the West Wing, season two, episode one, when she says she could sign the president's name. And we're like, basically, this bot is Donald Trump at this point. Towards the end, it could basically write the speech before he gave the speech. Did you go back and get his appearances back to- To the beginning of time, to the point where we got the, I think it was, was it the Czech or the um, Hungarian secret police file on him that was not translated? And we literally got it translated just to pull out the three paragraphs that they talked about Donald Trump in there. Exhaustively. We still have a list of things we were never able to get. We know he did interviews on WQXR from the radio listings in the New York Times in the 1970s. Okay. I'll be the first to say we failed at tracking those down, but pretty much 1980 forward, anything we could put our hands on. But the key was it had to be a complete interview. If it was, here's a little snippets and edits, we would reference it, but we wouldn't transcribe or put it in there because fair is fair. We say, we're going to show you everything that was said and ongoing thing. And I wouldn't say yelling much like with Reuters, Reuters will only release the excerpts. We never published. We would put what we call a stub. He did an interview with Reuters. They don't release the end to end transcript. Here is a link to it if you want to go look, but we're leaving it out because it's not that we don't trust Reuters, but you're going to have policies, stick with the policies. Anything we could find that was a full thing, and it's 12 million words uh, in change, I think, when we, the second he became a private citizen again, we stopped actively gathering from. We're still keeping tabs in case we need to go back on that, but right now, he's not president anymore. Speaking of word salad, I think I went all over the place on that one. I apologize. (laughs) But it was an active effort to gather all of this information. And part of where the press really latched in was we always said, if you're about to say many, a few, often, not very often, rarely, there is an exact number and we have it. So I I have to assume that the only person who would pull together an exhaustive database of everything Trump said must be his biggest fan. Absolutely. Being from Long Island and a New Yorker, you know, all New Yorkers loved Donald Trump long before he went into politics. (laughs) What did motivate you to track him? My daughter crying on election night. I was on a plane to San Francisco. I was one of the many people. Part of my EIR at US News was I was allowed to, you know, help out the newsroom. It wasn't part of the business, but I'm like, look, I'll pitch it. So I ran the models the same as everybody else that said, look, everyone's going to go home by nine o'clock. There is literally no freaking way this guy's going to win the election. Just look at these numbers. There is no way. And I was on the airplane and I don't even want to think about what my Wi-Fi bill on the plane was watching the needle like everybody else in the New York Times going, what the hell is going on? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And I got to San Francisco and it was like a tomb, went to the hotel, called my wife and I hear in the back and she's like, yeah, Amelia's a little upset and she's bawling. She was... I mean, eight. Uh, how could somebody who says that about women do da, da 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 da? And if I'm honest with myself, that was the trigger where I'm like, got to figure something out. And I'm not a propagandist. I'm not a 
you know, let's fight misinformation with more information kind of person. My background, everything about it is journalism. So I approach through the lens of what can I actually contribute where it's something I know how to do and I feel like I could do it. And then that led to, you know, the beers and the fake news and it just clicked. And I basically didn't sleep for like four weeks, went to work, put something together and eventually just, you know, turned in my, literally at one point, it was early January, I turned in my notice and then called my wife and told her I quit. I'd never done that in my entire career. And then she's like, what's going to, and I'm like, and bear in mind, we still had bar mitzvahs. We still had college education. She's like, what? I'm like, we'll figure it out. Um, like this just feels right. like there will be in classic, as Max would say, in classic idiot product manager fashion, you said, here's an idea and I'm sure we can figure out how to make money on it. That's basically what I did. Not a business strategy I recommend, but it's a way to start, but it's what I know. So there's a lot more to putting together a product like that than the tech and the acquisition of the data and the hosting of it. There's also, how do you get people to actually use it? How did it get found? I had put out something. We had an initial bump. On the 5th, I actually just sent out an email to a bunch of folks, said, hey, you want to know everything? And at the time, it was focused on his Twitter. Do you want everything, including his deleted tweets and uh, whatever? Here you go. We're just getting this going. And then next thing I know, BuzzFeed's writing about it, um, Pointer, a couple of So that's the initial bump that you can see. And then it kind of like just went back. Our audience largely ended up being the White House press corps. Like everything else, if you make something that is useful, easier, and uh, like anything else with time proves like I'm not trying to put my thumb on the scale or make anybody look bad or whatever else. This is just what he said. Here is what Donald Trump said. Judge for you. I'm not saying whether or not it's good. We had an equal amount of emails. So people say, thank you so much for showing how brilliant Donald Trump is. He's a great American. Two people saying, thank you so much. He's showing what an ass clown he is. And it would be the same thing they would be emailing about. And we stayed assiduously and still do neutral, which is here is what he said. We'll tell you what the data says about him, but you want an opinion. There's how many millions of people in Washington? There's plenty of people who can give you opinions on him, on Joe Biden. I've got my own personal opinions, but here is what the data said. Joe Biden goes to church almost as much as um, Donald Trump golfs. What does that mean? Ask somebody else what that means, but that's what the data says. I saw a study or two that said that his vocabulary use declined over time. Incorrect. Is that incorrect? We ran it over 40 years. Um, It's actually went up a little bit if you look at it, and that's mainly speech writing, because part of what we track in general in the platform is, is this somebody as near as we can tell? Because you're never perfect on script or off script. Donald Trump was super easy when he was reading. He read I've got to pull the most recent numbers, but please take this as a range versus an exact. Obviously, I haven't run it in months. He read between 25 and 30% slower than the average American. He was barely at about 110 words when reading out loud. He spoke over 220 words a minute. Usually, people are within 30, 40 words of those two ranges. As I like to joke around, like, you know, you didn't need us to tell you when Donald Trump was reading. It was painfully obvious to everybody when he was reading. So if you include pre-written stuff, his vocabulary actually went up a little bit. If you eliminate it, he's been the same since the 1980s. It wasn't changing and it wasn't declining that we could measure. I mean, bear in mind, we were at the point where when we ran the first, he speaks at a fourth grade level, which wasn't the original target, which like, let's compare. Um, At the fourth grade level, I mean, 
down to the point of literally counting exactly how many unique words. And I think he was like 2,600. And the the part that, again, I'll leave to other people to analyze, who was always in the cohort with Donald Trump, whenever we would look at vocabulary, speaking style, Bill Clinton was always the one that would cluster with him. Fascinating. Don't know why. Not going to do. But same thing on vocabulary. Bill Clinton, his vocabulary was under 3,000. They're the only two presidents where I think their vocabulary is under 3,000 words. His vocabulary, Clinton's, was definitely a lot, you know, higher up the thing, up the grade scale, but his, you know, he, he was not declining. He wasn't slurring the same way people like, oh, you know, Joe Biden, da, 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 da. No, if you go back historically 30 odd years, I mean, A, he said he has a stutter being very direct. Donald Trump's never said he has dyslexia, though literally it is painfully obvious to anybody who's ever listened to him read, looked at his vocabulary, followed I mean, you could go through a checklist of whatever else. So to be clear, I am not a doctor and I can't diagnose, but I can read just about every person who's written an article who is a doctor is like, you literally, like, you wouldn't even need to talk to this person for five minutes to say dyslexia. But like, Biden's pretty much been talking and has those kind of stammers and whatever else the same way he did 30 years ago. It's not because he's in his late 70s. It's how he talks. Between the time when you started this, pulled it together and sold it, how did it change? Did you end up adding in other public figures? Did you add functionality? What what happened to the product? So as silly as it sounds, my one disappointment was, uh, and we're we're hoping to, uh, I hopefully there'll be more information coming soon. But we're hoping to expand it. Let's put it that way. In twenty twenty two, we had to start focusing, being you know as crass as it sounds, although of course that's called life on the business. And what we found was we originally focusing in on the analysis piece. And here's everything we could do and hitting a brick wall for a couple of years. But people would say, oh, wow, but you could transcribe. And Max came and Cross was the one that kind of came in and said, if somebody wants to give you some money for something you're doing, explain to me again why you're saying no. Wait, wait, how did you know Max? Oh, sorry. So Max was introduced. We had received um, just like some seed money from Higher Ground Labs. We were looking around to raise You must money. have applied for it then. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we had applied for it. And it was less about the dollars and more about at the time – our focus was on working with politics, working with, as we said, were we were we progressive and democratic from a very technical standpoint? No. But if you ask me directly, like, we won't work for crazy. And the Republican Party at the time was definitely moving heavily. If, you know, somebody, you know, like Larry Hogan came along, I'm not sure we would have said no, to be perfectly honest. But there was a line and I think it's a lot clearer now. So anyway, they gave us a little bit. And at the time we were talking, um, I was working with our first CEO, me and our lead investors, a guy named Mark Walsh, great guy. He had just had his first grandbaby and always said kind of like, look, love you, but you know, sorry, grandbabies are cuter than you and, you know, respect totally, you know, they're totally cool. And I was speaking with um, Shamik Dada at Higher Ground. And he's like, you should really talk to Max because I was, I had very specific and very odd requirements, which is at the time, hi, we have basically no revenue. I'm not sure what I can afford to pay, but man, we got a lot of equity and here's what we're doing. And he said, I know somebody who might fit that bill. And he introduced to Max and I was straight and said, look, here's what I can do. He came to me with a proposal. He's like, I love what you're doing. And he asked me what the business strategy was. And I said, jokingly, like, what's business? And he's like, okay, let me know where you are. Um, Although you knew pretty well what business was. I mean, I, I again, I could be flippant, but at a certain point in life, you realize what you're good at and usually what you're good at and what you enjoy tend to be the same thing. Business to me is what you have to do to do the fun stuff. I, it, it is the most honest way I can put it. It sounds immature, but it's true. It's 
where I'm good at. There are people who are excellent at looking at something and seeing the business opportunity. Max was like, yeah, I don't even know why you need me to tell you if somebody wants to give you money, you should probably take it. So were you, did you start charging the White House press corps? Or did you look for other? Oh, no, no, no. There are easier ways. Uh, uh, one of my, my, my favorite joke of my wife, which I do tell to reporters, is if you want to make money, start a site for, you know, potentially people, homeless people. It's probably a better business model than trying to get reporters to pay for things. Um, and I don't disagree with that. There was no point in that. It was w- when we had gone out and pitched folks, folks like Politico, folks like CQ, um, which was separate from Fiscal Note at the time, Bloomberg, they were like, wow, this analysis is really interesting. But wait, you guys transcribe. Could you do and then fill in the blank, Congress, the floor, whatever else? And at the time, our bots and Margaret could automatically record just about anything online, do it in real time, do 50 of them at once. And she had no problem transcribing. And the way she was built, because she was built to profile like Donald Trump, the profiling, the original intent was to transcribe better. You know somebody, you know their vocabulary, you can take back a raw feed of text and say, no, 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 he said big league. He didn't say big league. And things like that. You learn how somebody talks. That was all built in and native and completely automated. How did your tool for that compare? You know, Google's got a tool. I saw a review of like 15 or 20 of these transcription, automated transcription tools. How does yours compare? Um, significantly better, but the key is with the vertical. In other words, we we actually use as a base and still do, we test Speechmatics, Google, uh, AWS routinely and Basemark. And if somebody's a 10th of a point better, we use them. But the key is when we started a 10th of a point better, I mean, even Google at the time wasn't great. Um, they couldn't punctuate. Um, they couldn't, you know, uh, you know, proper nouns, uh, abbreviations, all these things. We were vertically focused. And because we were building profiles, we would get right when they would say random names that they didn't know at the time or acronyms or whatever else, because we learned how Nancy Pelosi talks. Part of learning how Nancy Pelosi talks is what words does she use? And because it did it automatically, doing that for two people, 200 people or 2000 people was essentially the same level of effort. Um, It was built to scale. So we were able to squeeze at the time, we would benchmark when we started 12 points better than state of the art. We now benchmark a bit more than 2% better than state of the art. And we're realistic. It's going to be zero at some point. But the one place where we really excel, where I don't see anybody moving in is we could identify who's talking. And we do it better than 99.9% accurate, which is not, I'm, I know enough about machine learning numbers that I wouldn't throw that number around unless we've heavily vetted that number. Because we do everything, we look at who's on the screen, whose lips are moving, text on the screen, a Chiron, was the person, was the gentleman from Kentucky introduced? Well, now our bot has one of two people to identify. So what all then came into fact base over time? You sort of alluded to it, but what is the whole database these days? So the whole database now mainly fits into two main components. So we have the general search, which is every time if a president says, how you doing? Doesn't matter. There will be a three word stub of, you know, president delivers brief remarks walking into the White House. Hey, how you doing? Who am I to say that's useful or not useful? If they say it publicly, we go out of our way to make sure we're getting the video and transcribing it. We will use the White House transcripts officially and base marks. So there's the transcript database. The second part of it, which, um, you know, I wish we were maintaining it a little bit better, just at least in terms of functionality, but that's going to get solved very quickly, is the calendar, which is what's the president doing today? 
So we do that on a TikTok level, or at least try to, which is if he's, okay, the president delivers remarks at, um, you know, at a bridge in New Hampshire. All right. But at one point, he left the White House. He arrived at Andrews. He left Andrews. He arrived at this. It sounds like a ridiculous level of detail, but the person's a president of the United States. You don't know when these kind of things might be important. And quite frankly, we're capable of doing it. So we have a bot that reads and parses all the pool reports and literally will pull out, where's the president? What's the time? And loop that into the calendar. The piece that I wish we still had from the Trump times was generating the statistics, and that's going to go back up soon. At the time when we were acquired, obviously, you know, things sometimes move around and you have to, you know, pick shots. But now we're coming out of where we can get back our focus and start doing a lot more with fact base, which was we could benchmark any president against any other president based on their day of presidency. So, you know, Trump in particular be like, I'm doing the stock market's doing better than it's ever done before. Well, actually, you're ranked fourth right now on day 1412 of your presidency. And here is every other one. And oh, by the way, at the end of the first term, since McKinley, every single Democratic president has had the market be higher, including Carter, than when they started. And I think it was three Republicans were lower. So technically, if you're pro-market, you actually want to vote Democrat. If that is determinant of the market. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm not getting into the 18 months, you know, like, the, is it inflation now or whatever? I'll leave that to the people with Nobel Prizes. Yeah. So how was it doing as a business? So as a business, it's doing great. So the focus is, in general, the business, um, fact-based, both in fairness, I think I could say it's pre and post-acquisition. We're very focused on the transcripts and improving that. And it's built the the main differentiator we have, other than what I've mentioned, is it can scale. We just started doing the European Parliament. What was it involved? Pointing Margaret at the European Parliament and saying, go get all the schedules, go try to figure out who's talking and come back to me, which is what she's built to do. And two weeks later, she comes back. She's identified 85% of the people without us telling her who it is. We correct the one she gets wrong. So she has a clean baseline. And now she's recording everything that goes on in the European Parliament and transcribing it. In multiple languages. Right now, in fairness, in just English, we've tested it in other languages. And our main limiting factor is we've transcribed in Hindi, we've transcribed in Korean, we've transcribed in Russian, Hebrew, German. Now ask me how it did. I don't speak any of the languages. I have no idea. How <laughs> That's our main limiting factor is somebody looking at it. So um, right now, just English, which will do for our purposes. So we're talking to the translator and God bless translators. They speak slowly, evenly and clearly. So it's even easier but if we want to start doing 20 countries, all right, what's the URL? So the focus is there. The analysis piece is definitely where the business is going and where we need to be. And it's just politics, at least in my opinion, at least from my experience, isn't ready for it. And Wall Street is just getting – Wall Street's more comfortable with it, but and they're getting there. Um, and the main issue comes down to – and we ran into this in the 2018 cycle – we were able to, in seven words, tell you if you wanted to, you know, you know, start poking, why am I suddenly going to blank on the 2017 gubernatorial between Northam and Gillespie? Um, we could tell if you want to go after Gillespie, just quote Jack Schaefer. He hated Jack Schaefer. And we were able to figure that out from seven words during one debate in two and a half seconds. Um, but what we ran into a lot of was, well, Joe Bob in Midlothian has been doing this for 30 years and he's telling us that's not the case. Well, Okay, but I'm telling you, based on 200 hours of analysis of Gillespie, that is the case. And the answer was, Joe Bob's right and we're wrong. Was that the answer? No, he hates Jack Schaefer. Tell me about the decision to sell it. So the decision at the time, honestly, just came down to it was we were working with Fiscal Note for 
over a year and working with them on transcripts and they were trying us out. And it just, the conversation came up. I mean, it had come up variously with other partners, but this came up. I mean, my experience was an N of one. So I was hardly experienced with going through acquisitions, but this had a different intensity more than a casual request and discussed. Yeah, like everything else, you know, the age old and is, you know, as, as, you know, as Max would say, and, you know, I think Mark said the same thing as well. You know, if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. It was, look, we're perfectly, and it's true. Look, we were making a little bit of money. We weren't hugely profitable, but we had the ramp. We had the technology. If the right offer comes along, sure. Well, what would the right offer look like? Back and forth a couple of months. Um, And it just hit the point with a number that if I'm putting on my corporate hat, I would say, my fiduciary responsibilities would say, realistically, could I, you know, get this kind of a return for investors in the next three years? And the answer was, no, it would be five, seven, eight years. So I need to be fair. The other part of me would say it was the right offer. And they, you know, what was on the table and where I saw the growth arc was like, no, this makes a lot more sense. Like this is not a buy and destroy. This is buy and, you know, in a company that's growing and I'm going to stop right there. I realized because now I'm getting the SEC part. It seemed right is what it comes down to. And what was weird about the whole thing is literally went through the whole acquisition in the first six months working. I never met anybody. This was COVID times. You know, most people were in DC. It was entirely done by Zoom. So you you didn't entertain any other offers. It made sense one-on-one to sell it to a strategic partner. It made sense. And from the partner ego, as silly as it sounds, one of the big ones to me, even though it wasn't a business and I was open, I said, look, this has nothing to do with fact base was never built to make money. Um, never ran ads, but it was built to be a service. But it also has a lot of reputation associated with it. I said, it's ultimately yours and you can tell me whatever you want and then change your mind. I'm like, passion project, what's going to happen? And and was told very frankly, look, the first priority is the transcripts bringing it online, but we have absolutely no intention of killing it and want to see it grow, but it's probably going to be nine months to a year before we get up to it. And right on schedule, got up to it and it's back. So we're not killing it, but we need to focus here first. We're a growing company too. So that was a big piece of me personally, which was, I mean, as folks say, we also do earnings calls. And I get asked occasionally like, well, why aren't you more into the earnings calls? I'm like, honestly, I'm like, because politics is interesting and finance is boring to me. Now, from a business perspective, I'll be the first one to tell you, there is way the heck more potential in what we do in earnings calls. As the nerd in me and the product person, that's the boring part. I mean, you know, and again, I'm not dissing it by any stretch, but that's back to, I know me. And that's just a personal interest level. So I know only the barest amount about fiscal note. And I know you have to be careful about talking about it because it's going public. Can you just tell me what does the company do generally? So we connect basically people with their governments. So that's the corporate mission statement. Taking it one level down, it's about gathering all of this information from local, state, national governments that on one hand is free and open, and on the other hand, if you've ever tried to go through that information, is a giant bloody nightmare, and tracking it in real time and making it available to businesses, clients, politicians as a essentially an end-to-end solution to connect with your local legislature, manage the communication, to be able to follow legislation, and to be able to make intelligent decisions about what's going on in government. The connecting people in government is a much shorter version. I go verbose. They acquired, I noticed, a number of longstanding enterprises in that space. 
Congressional Quarterly is GQ one of them, one. right? Yep. Which was, you know, when I was in college, you went to the numerous paper copies and you read the congressional proceedings. Is Roll Call part of that? Yeah, CQ yeah. Roll Call. Right. It's, it's actually CQ Roll Call was rolled together by The Economist. Right, prior the Economist to that Group, yep. And they had bought Capital Advantage, which published directories of members of Congress and had software to connect advocacy groups and trade associations. So there's uh, this has kind of rolled up a bunch of companies in that space. A lot of times after being acquired, well, people have a dreadful experience. Oh, yeah. About 99% of the time. In your case? I'm in the 1% and I'm not kidding. And I, I have... You, you, you could run my own technology on me. Let me tell you, I'm a terrible poker player. So the only reason why I'm hesitating right now is back to, speaking frankly, the SEC. I'll be the first to say, I don't know the first thing other than the safest thing to say during a company going public is not a damn thing. What I can say is me personally, it's essentially opportunity to play with new technology, build new products, test things out, do it quickly. Have you thought about a uh, business card that says Mad Scientist Fiscal Note? I actually, I actually suggested that because the funny part is, is my title is Vice President of Alternative Data. On Wall Street, Alternative Data has a meeting. In Washington, I don't need to tell you, Alternative has a very different Alternative meaning. facts, sure. Exactly. So I almost like enjoy it now just because it's abusing. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm doing alternative information. Um, Wall Street totally gets what I'm talking about. Uh, unstructured data, basically. But in all seriousness, it's from the standpoint of what to do in the opportunity, the word no exists only in the sense of let's stay focused on what we're doing because I've been on the side. An old engineering joke is the young engineer comes in and says, oh, jQuery stinks. I could build better. And the right answer is I absolutely think you could build better than jQuery. And on your own time and when I'm not paying you, you should absolutely do that. However, we got things to do and jQuery isn't core to the business. So let's just use it and do what we need to do. It's a very young company, and so I'm adjusting to being a gray beard, which is kind of fun. But I mean, part of the advantage of being young as well know is you don't know what you don't know, and sometimes that can be dangerous. And sometimes that lets you think about something and do things that a sane person wouldn't do. You yourself, you're an entrepreneur. I'm sure you've heard the a sane person doesn't start their own company because no sane person says eight out of ten fail. That sounds like good odds. You got to have a little crazy in you to do that. As rational as you are, there's got to be a little crazy when you go out and say, I think I'm going to build my own thing. So there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of focus, for lack of a better term, on, look, this is what we do. So while this may be cool, I haven't run into the, yeah, we could build a better rocket ship, so let's go compete with SpaceX. And let's be real, we've all heard about tech companies that fall into that syndrome. We could do better at this. We could do better at that. I'm sure you could do better at building electric cars too, but we're not going to. I'm curious, what is your fascination with weather? <laughs> A grudge, if you want the honest answer. Um, I had, this has gone back to 1996. Um I was at the post. We, I, you know, because it is makes total sense at a company the size of the Washington Post to let 24 year olds launch, you know, the international section, the business section, the weather section online. I had picked up weather and I wanted to do historical weather. Remember, this is 96. So we're talking, you know, banging stones to make sparks to see what happens. Wanted to make historical weather. I had tracked down a person who had a website that I'm not even sure still exists. I'm blanking and not because I would happily mention this person because they were annoying. Um, I forget what it's called that had 
climate information. I'm like, great. We're the Washington Post. Can we license it? Track the person down. He's from the Isle of Man. He was living in Arizona. And he was just like, why would I give my information to the, I mean, just like, there's a way of saying no. And there's a way of saying no and pissing somebody off. And this person clearly took the book of saying no while pissing somebody off, particularly if you're 24. And so he did. And I tried again. And he's like, like, which part of no didn't you get? And finally, I'm like, you know what? Screw that guy. I'll bet I could figure out a way to do this myself. And I'm not kidding. That was the origin of Weatherbase. I built it. I initially built it for the post. When I left the post, I had pitched it at AOL and they're like, I don't see us making $50 million on that. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. That is how I taught myself to code. I literally knew nothing other than like Microsoft Word basic, some visual basic. I taught myself PHP and databases, building the first version of Weatherbase, making the first robots. And of all things, bless my wife uh, for you know having the business head of the two of us, built it never really sure what we were doing. And at one point she looked at the email and said, do you know people are calling asking for consulting on this, that, and the other thing? I'm like, yeah, who has time? She's like, and this was after we had sold um, to Sir. And she's like, I do. And she started calling them back. And now I think uh, I, 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 she quotes some embarrassing number and her main focus is she helps companies that are building solar panels and wind farms back up their force majeure claims when weather hinders their construction so that they could claw back money under the contract legally by proving this was an act of God. It's almost embarrassing, like, at least in my opinion, you know, like, you know, it's a perfectly fair rate, but for these companies, each day could be half a million dollars. Um, So she puts together reports that says, look, going back a hundred years and looking at this and here's the matrix and I still build the tech and that's where the money comes from. And people find us by stumbling across Weatherbase, which I'm embarrassed to say, I haven't touched the code on the front end in probably nine years, but still works. So you have a, a database, kind of like fact-based, but for the weather? For the weather, and to pat myself on the back on the weather, it doesn't just grab from one source, it still talks to over 100 global Met offices. So we've got things like 4,000 different locations in Mexico. Um, amazing where, and we, we have clients that license the data from Jen ranging from um, no exaggeration, um, pig farms in the European union to a forestry group in Chile to my personal favorite, a formula one race team that computes engine performances to within six decimal points and does it by measuring historically humidity, altitude, and the weather based on where they're going to race. You own this. You, oh yeah, yeah this, this is, is a side project. project. This this is not just a side project. It's a literally a 100% robot-driven side project, at least in terms of the data gathering. These bots still run, and a lot of, like everything else, everything you work on when you're building companies or projects is a product of everything you learned before. That's where I learned crawlers. That's where I learned how to make you know web crawlers that know how to heal themselves and fix themselves if they run into problems, which fed da, 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 on and on down the list and eventually leads to fact-based, which is... A lot of what fact-based does is if you're going to go out and find whatever, uh, you know, a, you know, Joe Biden says, you know, either you got to be really patient or really good at unleashing robots that know how to find the right information. And, you know, I'm lazy. I like when robots do my work and make me look good. Does anyone else have a database of weather like that? Oh, there's actually quite a few of them. Yeah. Um, I, at the time in 1999, when it launched, we were it. Um, us and this other guy who hadn't at the time updated it since 1995. Part of what hits with Weatherbase is, again, strategy. No, we just have SEO that goes back almost a quarter century at this point, and that counts for something. Yeah. Well, Bill, this has been a very entertaining hour for me. 
chatting with you and hearing your stories. And uh, I wonder if there's a question that I failed to ask that I should have. You just asked my favorite question as a reporter. What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? Usually folks will ask for what's some of the craziest things you found doing in fact base. What are some of the craziest things you found doing fact space? Vladimir Putin's terrifying. Um, of over 20,000 people we've profiled, he's the only one that almost looked like we made a mistake and didn't submit anything. He's talking, he's speaking, he's whatever else. He looks happy, he looks sad, and it looks like a flat line when you're trying to measure variations in his speech patterns, when you're trying to measure variations. Do you think he's a sociopath too? I think he, 2,000 hours of KGB training is actually worth something. I mean, you know, it's all all open out there. I don't know, to be honest, I don't know if he's a sociopath and I'm definitely not, um, you know, a medical person. I want to be clear. A person who has a Harvard degree in psychology said he's a sociopath. I would not consider myself qualified to do it. What I would be qualified from going in on the data is I have over 500 examples using the 500 worst Pinocchios in Glenn Kessler's database where greater than 95% and I'm only hedging because it's been a year since I've had to pull the number up out of my head. He speaks faster and is more relaxed when he is saying something that's not true than when he's saying something that's true. And I could document that with data in excess of 95% of the time. I will tell you, that's not a normal thing. Most people are not comfortable lying. He is more comfortable when he's lying than when he's stressed. He is least comfortable talking about God. And that's not one or two examples. That's based on over 20 years of interviews spanning three hours of him just speaking on the subject of God when you compare it to almost any other topic. He crawls out of his skin whenever the word God comes up. He believes he knows what he's doing in the Middle East. He is very relaxed, very calm, and very measured when he's talking about the Middle East. So whether or not he knows what he's doing, he's very comfortable, he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't seem to like the word God coming up at all. Again, back to read into that what you will. I mean, God, there used to be tons of things. I well, mean, is there anything you, you know about Trump from this that you think the average person who follows him closely doesn't? I'll do a rare thing because we've been talking now and throw in an opinion on Trump, which I usually avoid. It's a straight opinion. Trump is an onion with one layer. While fact base has been, at least I believe, did its job, it was cited in both House impeachment reports. It's been used by reporters in over 4,000 stories as an authoritative source. I don't mean to be like bragging, but like that was its purpose was to serve. Making money was never the original intent. It did the job and still doing the job it was supposed to. You almost, in terms of opinion, does somebody really need fact-based to tell you that he's full of it, to say that you shouldn't trust the guy, to say that he would throw everybody under the bus first before he'd be, that he is literally, um, he's Cal in the Titanic sitting on the rowboat waving to everybody going away on the Titanic, that he thinks everybody who is giving him money is a sucker? I'm pretty sure you don't need fact-based to tell you that with any analysis. New Yorkers for 40 years will tell you. The old joke of, you know, everybody does business with Donald Trump once. Everybody in New York does business with Donald Trump once. There's a reason why the Secret Service had to find contractors from out of the New York metro area to do their work in Trump Tower because everybody heard Trump Tower and it didn't matter what they said about the U.S. government. Not a person. There was not a contractor who's like going to go in and do a work in Trump Tower because, you know, you're not going to get your whole bill paid. This was not a secret. I hope that our White House and our government only does business with them once. I, I I can't lie. I, as I like to say also with Donald Trump, this isn't Democrat and Republican. 
he was an ass clown in New York for 40 years before he ever really ran for president. And there isn't a New Yorker who doesn't have a story talking about something that he did to him or one of his friends. That's just part of he was the background in New York and the guy you laughed at. It just suddenly became serious when, you know, he became president. And that's not a Democrat or Republican thing. And that's just a Donald Trump thing. Well, Bill. Sorry, was that a little too direct? Not for me. <laughs> uh, uh, thanks very much. Anything else you want to say? No, I really appreciate it. This this was a lot of fun. Hopefully, I feel like I talked a lot, but then I realized it's an interview. So, of course, I'm supposed to talk a lot. Yeah, you're on the hook for that. That was Bill Frischling. Bill is at factba.se, fact base. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.